Hello, and welcome to another edition of Talking Chats. In today's chat, I am joined by two listeners, Scott Holbrook-Faust and Eric Singletary. The primary topic of our discussion is written and oral cultures in Middle-earth, but we also got off on several large tangents, including the role of trade in Middle-earth economies and the nature of magic. One thing that we've talked about before is the difference between oral cultures and written cultures. And of course, you know, I've been thinking a lot both through the lecture that Michael Drought gave here on campus recently and the conversation that I recorded with Michael Drought about the status of Tolkien's works as written works and the way that he has written in a rich manuscript history of his documents Mm -hmm. into the fiction of his work. And in in the light of how much attention Tolkien focuses on his documents as written documents and the way that those written documents are handed down, it's interesting to think about and to kind of reflect on the different kind of cultures of literacy in Middle-earth because the cultures of Middle-earth are really not at all uh, sort of as bookish as one might assume Mm -hmm. if one really just thinks about it from that perspective. And we can see a pretty wide variety. There's some very big differences between a culture which is a primarily oral culture and a culture which is a primarily written culture. And I think that we can see some different kinds of cultures really kind of all along that spectrum in Middle-earth. In some ways, I think that people don't really kind of think about enough or make some assumptions about I think Aragorn specifies and talks about it specifically, rather, with the Rohirrim. They sing many songs, but they write no books. Yes, yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Clearly, the Rohirrim are... Holy oral. Yeah, a, a very, at least largely. I mean, I'm trying to think of any reference to writing in Rohan. Yeah. I can't I think, think of any. That, there's well, not there's... even, like, the occasional rune somewhere. I don't think there's anything like that. Yeah, I mean, you think of, for instance, at the funeral ceremony for Theoden in The Return of the King when they're, when they're mm-hmm. on the way back through. And even then, you bring out a bard to recite the names of the kings, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, you know, when the name of, the- of Theoden is named, then Amir drains his glass, yeah. you know? So even there, even for comparatively simple things. Yeah, and they're, they're kind of the most... The most Saxon culture out of all. They yeah. essentially had the Saxons, instead of ending up in the British Isles, ended up in the plains of right. France. And, you know, and as, and as we've found. Yes, yeah. and always, you know, always whenever talking about the Rohirrim and the Anglo-Saxons, I always feel like I must have a, have a disclaimer. Of course, Tolkien said in one of his appendices that, of course, the Rohirrim are not at all like the Anglo-Saxons, but as, of course, Michael Droud said when he was here, um, that's a little bit silly. I mean, they're very much like the yeah. Anglo-Saxons. But they're not in England. No, so I don't right. like he it at transplanted them <laughs> in yeah. order to give them a horse culture. But, but even still, they're, they're descended from the north and from, like, the men of Dale and so on. And you yeah. picture, in The Hobbit especially, uh, the people of Eskaroth having books. And that mm-hmm. is interesting. You're right that you certainly do not get the sense in The Hobbit mm-hmm. that Eskaroth is an oral culture that is anything like. You, you've Rohan. got this... The, the master of the town who's pretty much an accountant. Yes, yes. And he's got books. You know he's got books. <laughs> yes. I'm trying to remember any actual references. You did, now, they still sing songs, of course. You know, they yes. have the yeah. traditional songs that they sing, the songs of prophecy and mm-hmm. everything that come down. But still, even there, it is not like, and of old, you know, the songs that we have of old of, you know, mm-hmm. from the bards, the yeah, same kind of sense, it. you know, so a maker sung long ago in Rohan. You don't get any of that kind of sense. No. And it's even, not even when they're singing traditional songs. And it's not even, the, the time gap isn't the same as yeah. you get in the, with yeah. Rohan either. Right, yeah, and we're talking about 100 years ago. Nah, you know, songs that have new songs from the last 100 years <laughs> in Lake Town, yeah, yeah. Well, also, though, you, you have a split of a culture that is then living on the plains, mm-hmm. and then you have a culture who lives a relatively settled life within the context of Middle-earth, a fairly modern city. I wonder if, and in the 500 years that have passed since Errol Road South, if the Dalemen and Asgaroth and all of that have developed the writing of books and specifically got that from the dwarves. Well, we do know that the dwarves are a more writing-intensive culture yeah, than well, average. The, the, are the dwarves essentially Jews? <laughs> Wasn't that a, in, in, something that Tolkien... Had... In their um, linguistic phonetic, Kuzdal was based largely on Semitic languages. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Certainly, linguistically, he was basing that on... Semitic languages. Uh, and there's that reference in the Silmarillion when Daron invents his runes mm-hmm. um, that the elves weren't all that interested, but the dwarves loved them. 
and immediately oh, yeah. incorporated them. And, and you have, uh, I mean, of course, think of, you know, sort of obviously, famously, the dwarf runes on Thorin's map and everything. Both Those are all the Dairon Angerthas. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Both the open, plainly inked runes and the moon letters. That clearly cunning writing, as Bilbo calls it, is something that the dwarves really, really love. I mean, now, of course, we don't see a lot of dwarven documents. We don't see a large number of them, that is. Mm-hmm. But though, of course, presumably... They're very secretive, and they don't lend them out. But, of course, we do get the Book of Mazarble, yeah. yeah. And that's that in itself is a pretty remarkable testimony to people who are plainly dedicating to writing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Basically, the, the mass journal of a, an expedition. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And the kinds of things that are written, I mean, even just in the snatches that Gandalf reads mm-hmm. from the Book of Mazarble shows that they're they're writing a, a fairly thorough written chronicle of the new dwarven settlement. The dwarves are clearly a writing culture. In The Hobbit and later emphasizes the close community that the dwarves and the men of Dale lived in. So, yeah, yeah. so there's lots of reasons to see that kind of an impact on their culture, as indeed the other thing that Dale is known for in The Hobbit is the manufacture of toys. Right, The toy yeah. market of Dale was the wonder of the North. Mm-hmm. And, and we see that back in the, the long-expected party. Yeah, yeah exactly. Things right. imported. Exactly. Um, it almost kind of makes me think of classical age Celts, who were an oral nomadic culture, but then you had the Milesians of Galway, which was this big port, and they were extremely civilized, and they traded with everybody. So a lot of it could be just about location, location, location. Yeah, and also the the people of Esgoroth are on the Long Lake. Exactly. The they, trade with the or- they trade they're, with they're the elves, con- they trade with the dwarves, they're, they're connected, trading They're connected port. to the Lonely Mountain, to Dorwinian, yeah. to, to so Mugwood. it could be a very similar situation to mm. kind of the, the Milesians of yeah. medieval Galway. Trade was exactly the other thing I was thinking in addition to the connection yeah. to the dwarves. The main reality of life in Lake Town as we see it before Smaug smokes it. Smaug smokes it. smashes it. I, <laughs> I was thinking smokes. Gosh, that's what I was to say. Uh, anyway, um, uh, and I'm not going to repeat it. Um, the main thing we see in it is trade. I mean, it, it, it yeah. is definitely a mercantile center. And as you say, the master is an accountant, you know, yeah. primarily, and he thinks about things mm-hmm. like tolls, you know. So obviously they have written records. And if you're doing a lot of trade, you have to write stuff down. That creates this whole legal written culture, which you just generally don't see that same kind of thing yeah. uh, in an oral culture. Metaseld, not the center of trade, for instance. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we no. just don't see that uh, in Rohan. Um, so I think that that's... Do the Rohirrim trade at all that we see? I'm trying to think of examples. No, we see them refusing to trade with Sauron. (laughs) No, you can't have horses. (laughs) In terms of of at least their location, they're kind of comparable to a lot of the Germanic and um, those those tribes which tended to be fairly isolated. They're basically a bunch of different homesteads which identify themselves as members of the Rittermark, but don't really interact a whole lot. Yeah, mm-hmm. and they clearly have a feudal structure, you know, with Theoden as their king, and mm-hmm. the geography of Rohan enables them as a larger people to be basically self-sustaining. I mean, you've got mm-hmm. a lot of farmland out in the Westfold, so they wouldn't need traders. Actually, it w- this was an interesting point that someone made to me, I forget whether it was by email or Facebook, a couple months ago, was the lack of attention paid to trade in a lot of Tolkien stories, that even, you know, some of the great and fabulous huge cities, you know, the point that this listener, who will forgive me for forgetting his name as I'm remembering, <laughs> his, you know, out of the blue from months ago, though relieved that I'm finally getting around to answering it in fashion. <laughs> uh, but anyway, he made a great point about how the biggest cities, you know, places like... Minas Tirith. You know, not even that, in the Silmarillion. Gondolin, Nargothrond, like Gondolin. How do you survive as a huge metropolis when you're just enclosed? Now, clearly you can be a... Well, you, well if, you, if you believe Ted Nesmith's painting, there's farmlands in that inner circle. Yeah. <laughs> it, it is, you know, this large green veil, and it, the fact that they could grow food in it, I think, is perfectly plausible. Mm-hmm. And I think that's not any kind of a stretch at all. And of course... The wealth that they have is very different from wealth acquired by trade. <laughs> Gondolin is like the ultimate version of old money. Yeah. Money actually carried over from Valinor, largely. I mean, the stuff that they get, they do mine in the mountains, so we see yeah, where they, they have get plenty of natural resources in, in that yeah, regard. Exactly. Mm-hmm. So the larger point that 
this listener was making, and with which I agree, is that Tolkien's societies tend to be generally self-sustaining. Yeah, totally. You rarely see an empire that is built upon trade, or at least it's it's rarely a good thing when you do see yeah, that kind mm-hmm. of thing. Mm-hmm. I mean, we think of Lotho in the Shire with Saruman. The fact that South Farthing Leaf is in Isengard is suspicious. Nobody is like, I, I had no idea it went so far south. <laughs> Almost nobody thinks like, wow. Somebody in the South Farthing is getting enterprising. You know, they're, you know, they're, they're going global with, with this pipe <laughs> in the South Shire. And the South Shire, or, good, or, good or for in them. in terms of Middle Earth, plain all. <laughs> yeah, I mean, no, nobody, nobody, no, it's global now already. It's oh, global, yeah, okay. A bunch of little, little orcs down under Isengard, <laughs> inspecting it and packaging it, rolling it into little cigarettes and <laughs> shipping it out. <laughs> <laughs> with a little eye branded on the box. No, no, white hand. White hand, yeah. eye down in the corner. <laughs> yes, no, well, it's certainly Trademark. true that uh, we would have Isengard sweatshops had things been allowed to go just one or two steps further. But, um, but no, I mean, I think that's an interesting example because... Lotho's activities, his desire to gain by far more than he was good for him. Yeah, exactly. That's clearly a bad idea and very suspect. Um, Tolkien pointed out in one of his letters, I think, that he was growing more and more anarchist in his governmental views, not in terms of men with beards and bombs, but in terms of just individual homesteads that rule themselves and aren't interfered with. Yes, decentralized government. Yeah. Yeah, he was a big fan. Or rather very skeptical of the tendencies of centralized yeah. governments. H- um, hating the British Empire but loving England. That's an important influence. That way we've gotten a little bit far afield now in talking about trade. <laughs> Previously, cool. so I'm kind of yeah. working backwards. Trade yeah. as, in, as impacting the written culture of yeah. Eskaroth no. is where we'd originally started there. Thinking about written language in Tolkien, it seems like the most consistent place that you see written language is on weapons and talismans, and it's generally a spell of some sort, which mm-hmm. is very similar to a lot of European oral cultures. Like you had the Celts and you had the tradition of the Oum, or you had the Norse and the Saxons, both of whom used runes as on weapons at, to invoke the spirit of the weapon, and it seems mm-hmm. like what you do see a lot of in terms of written language is spells of power in, in the form mm-hmm. of written Barrow language. Barrow blades and Andorian. Yeah. Yeah, and Glamdring and Orchrist, of course. And Stone. Mm-hmm. And Mary's Horn. We certainly do see a lot of runes that way. I would agree that that is true, that we do see a lot of that, that to phrase it around in a different way, almost all of the artifacts, which are themselves described as having some kind of potency of their own, usually do have writing on them. Even, of course, you know, very famously, the Ring of Power, right? Yeah. I mean, it's it's yeah. not merely it the, decorative. It was, <laughs> it was, it was the, the only the ring. ring that's described as having writing on it, but it was also the most potent. But there are other categories of writing. I mean, I'm thinking of places in which we see writing. Gondor seems to be, like in, the, in sharp contrast to the Rohirrim, a largely the, the, written the, culture. The literary uh-huh. center of Middle-earth, yeah. almost, except yeah. for maybe Rivendell. I mean, they've got a library. I mean, there aren't that many libraries yeah. in Middle-earth, but Minas Tirith has one. It's where it's... Gandalf goes to find everything out. Right, exactly. Of course, we do get a couple references. The Shire, one can also find writing there, too. Well, the Red Book of Westmarch, among yeah. others. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and of course, the, the, one of the influences, I mean, as, as you can see at the end of The Return of the King and in the appendices, one of the consequences of the trip out that Mary and Pippin and Sam took, I'm excluding Frodo because I'm talking about the later influence on the Shire, mm-hmm. which of course Frodo only had for, what, four years? years or four years, yeah. So anyway, one of the major cultural influences um, of the, the connection between the Shire and the wider world that they established is an increase in written culture. And we have great libraries mm-hmm. being collected by Mary and Pippin at Tuckborough and at Great Smiles. Bringing up lore from the South. Tuckborough and Great Smiles, wasn't it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah, in Brandy Hall, I meant to say. Do you see that as potentially Tolkien looking at his world in which the modern world is infringing on a largely oral culture countryside. Well, I think as well. that seems to me a product of the shift that's happening in Middle-earth from the Third Age to the Fourth Age. Mm-hmm. Um, and the main 
focus of that shift is, of course, now it's the beginning of the, of the world of men, right? Mm-hmm. The dominion of men has come. And if the living memory of the ancient days is passing away, the Red Book of Westmarch is explicitly designed as a way to keep memory alive. Mm-hmm. That's the phrase that they use. So that's what they are relying on, to keep memory alive. And so you have even just the references to Findegil, King's writer, who transcribes the the book of Perianov in the Minas Tirith library and corrects a lot of stuff, we're told, is... Spelled Baragon's name wrong. <laughs> <laughs> right. uh, that one little reference mm-hmm. gives a kind of glimpse into this larger literature and literate world and culture in Minas Tirith especially, mm-hmm. which clearly Pippin most aggressively and Mary also and Sam are importing into the Shire. You know, now this is not to say that the hobbits are cheerfully and unquestioningly becoming wholly written, though, again, writing was always a part of their culture. Yeah, I mean, they, I think, are the most complicated one. In the, I think, the long-expected party chapter still, you see Bilbo willing a bookcase to one of his cousins, who was a right. great borrower of books. Right, mm-hmm. yeah, exactly. And, never, and very poor at returning them. <laughs> oh, poorer than usual. <laughs> yes, exactly. Very similar to what you would see in the countryside of Tolkien's England, or in the countryside of Ireland, or in the countryside of, of his contemporary... American Appalachia, kind of all of which were oral cultures, but into which the outside world was very much moving in. So for several generations now, instead of all of the children growing up, learning how to till the crops and play the songs, now you could almost imagine there being a schoolhouse in which they're being taught to read and write. Or at least a couple of months out of the year. Yeah. The comments that Tolkien makes about Hobbit literacy in the prefatory essay of Fellowship of the Ring is he says, you know, that Hobbits were by no means all literate and, you know, many of them... They learned to cook before they learned the letters and some of, most of them never reached that. Exactly, right. Mm-hmm. And there's that wonderful comment that Sam's gaffer makes when he's making excuses for the fact that Sam is literate, right? When he's talking to his friends down at the bar and saying that old Mr. Bilbo has learned Sam his letters, meaning no harm, and I hope no harm comes of it, he says. <laughs> Sounds very similar to something you might hear in, in Appalachia or in the English countryside. In the mind of the gaffer, there is a, I don't know how large, but clearly a non-zero chance that the, the, the more, literacy is going to be bad. The more you know, the more chance you have of entering peril. This is, of course, connected with his injunction Mm -hmm. to Sam, which he is himself quoting at his his quotation of himself at that time when he says, you know, don't get messed up in the business of your betters or you'll get stuck in... in Cabbages and potatoes are what's good for me. Very much the key also that Bilbo is quite definitely an aristocrat from a very old, very prominent family who's lived Mm -hmm. in Bag End, which is this central... But of course, smile for generations. But of course, Bilbo <laughs> is also the center of the tale-telling culture. I mean, when you talk mm-hmm. about songs and tales, it's always certainly when we get to the Lord of the Rings, old Mr. Bilbo's songs or old Mr. Bilbo's. Whenever anyone sings, you know, when Frodo sings the walking song, that, sounds, says, that sounds like one of old Bilbo's rhymings. Exactly. Yeah. That's it. There's a sense in which it sort of must be. He's, he's like the most prolific author in the Shire, <laughs> and what one wonders does that come. St- Specifically from him having all these high adventures. Right. He's the poet laureate. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Except, of course, not exactly laureate, because it's not like anyone else is celebrating him. Everyone else is wearing their eyes at parties, right? He's the poet auto laureate. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. Or rather, there's just not a whole lot of competition, I guess, for that post. So you definitely do have, though, a good deal of Hobbit storytelling and culture. You have the stories about... The Tooks and the of the, the, the thought that one of the Tooks had at some point taken a fairy wife. Very much a yeah. folk tale, and but also yes. the invention of the game of golf and yes. all these yes. adorable yes. Little folk tales. You just picture hobbits telling each other. And, and yeah. most of them seem to re- revolve around the Tooks. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Which started out probably as gossip, and Bilbo was and turned part into Duke, folk so. yeah. Which, exactly. but yeah, kind of a lot in a lot of. Rural cultures like that, folklore begins as gossip, 
and yeah. turns into folklore. Think similarly uh, of the scene in The Prancing Pony when Pippin is telling stories to, mm. to the Bree folk, right? And he, he tells the story of the collapse of the ceiling of Mickle Delving. Flower uh, Dumpling. Exactly. Is, so now we get the story of Old Flower Dumpling, and you can see how Old Flower Dumpling the mayor can grow into <laughs> right. a folklore and character. That's the sort of folklore that still exists today because right. you still have these and, oral and cultures. That's on the same level as Johnny Appleseed, and you, you know that that tale later became right. told of Sam. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. What are the legends being told of Sam Gamgee and his tree planting? Yeah, mm-hmm. 150 years later. Yeah, exactly. And of course, we get a reference to the evolution of those stories into folklore with Mad Baggins, right? I mean, yeah. you know, yeah. and, and again, in The Prancing Pony, we get a brief glimpse, or well, an abortive brief glimpse, <laughs> of like the early stages of that. When, when Pippin yeah, well. starts to retell the great speech and and mm-hmm. and, and, and and Bilbo's, uh, right. Bilbo's and then, party, and then some Brelander Hobbit probably takes those fragments and creates the the Bree version of it eventually. Mm-hmm. Right. So you'd have you know Mad Baggins of the Shire who you know vanishes and then uh, reappears with a bang and a flash carrying bags of gold, and then who knows exactly what the Bree version of that comes out of that? And of course, who knows what the Bree version of Frodo and his disappearing act? You know, oh who sings on tables and then vanishes yeah. when he hits the ground. There, there so is, he's going to become a, the the Bree Rumpelstiltskin. Yeah. <laughs> also, it sounds. Like uh, listening to these sorts of stories, Hobbit's tale, and listening to the nature of Hobbit folklore, mm-hmm. it kind of tells you something about what's important to Hobbits, which all of these are stories about family ties and families and family lines. Never. And in, an, uh, in another culture, you might be listening to, to their folklore, and it's about setting places into the mindset and mental maps. But the hobbits don't need mental maps because their, their their geography is very very limited. Exactly, what they need is to know who's who in the yeah, Shire, and, and so they tell stories so that they can tell. Very well, so they create mental maps of the families. And that's very or, woven into ho- right. hobbit mindset because they're very much into genealogies exactly. and having books full of things that they already yeah. know. Which reminds me of another reference that is. The, another conversation that we hear down at the Green Dragon at the beginning of the Fellowship of the Ring, when they're telling the stories about Frodo's parents drowning in the river and mm-hmm. like whether did Drogo push her in, did he have too much to drink? Exactly right. So you know we can see sort of legends and stories growing about that. I mean, as soon as they mention you know, him and his parentage and how he's from Buckland, they yeah. immediately have these you know and then you the stories start about his going parents. back and back and back mm-hmm. to the old Took to you know, as far back as you can go. But the one thing I would come back to there is, Scott, as you just said, they do have genealogical books, yeah, too. Mm-hmm. And they love genealogical books. They're their favorite books in the Shire. The great bestsellers of the Shire are books of family trees. The parts which tend to you know, make my students go cross-eyed when they look at them at the end, even the very, very simplified ones at I love the looking end. At uh-huh. books, though. <laughs> it's like a landscape, and... Mm-hmm the way that oral cultures understand their landscapes is with stories. Mm-hmm. And that's the Hobbit landscape. It is. And, though, you know, it's interesting because when I compare, for instance, between the way that Tolkien talks about pre-industrial and post-industrial countryside, for mm-hmm. instance, there's the very clear, I mean, there's absolutely no question about the moral or value-oriented baggage that that has. Pre-industrial equals good, yeah. post-industrial equals bad. Yeah, there's, there's really no two ways about that. Mm-hmm. But I don't see that same kind of dynamic with written stuff. That is, I don't see a parallel sense of loss mm-hmm. or corruption. That, if anything, the books... Tolkien doesn't ever abandon... He certainly doesn't derogate oral cultures. He's not glamorizing written culture and holding that as the Mm -hmm. standard. But he also, in my view anyway, doesn't seem to depict the growth of a written culture, for instance, as a real loss. I mean, the way that he keeps talking about writing is there's this sense of accuracy, which is valued. The local people may be telling legends about Mad Baggins, but Sam is keeping alive in his book the true story. Mm-hmm. The real events of what happened. And the way that Frodo emphasizes that. You will read things out of the Red Book and keep alive the memory of the age that is gone so that people will remember the great danger and so love their beloved land all the more. Keep alive the memory of the age that is gone. Um, 
by reading things out of the red book, the book that he's given him. And again, even the genealogies too, mm-hmm. right? They mm-hmm. like to have it all set down fair and square with no contradictions. Those are their favorite kinds of genealogies. Almost books. the birth of a sacred text in a way. Yeah. Yeah, it's, <laughs> yeah, not exactly sacred, but yeah. But I mean, sacred sacred insofar as things can be sacred to hobbits. <laughs> that, seems. They, they don't really have a relation to the sacred capital S, yeah. so to speak. Yeah. No, that's true. I mean, as, as Frodo is kind of embarrassedly aware at dinner with Faramir, right? We, 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 uh, we don't face the West. Uh, exactly. Oh, wait. Uh, you're okay, supposed to I'll, face the West I'll, before I'll, I'll dinner? I'll face the West uh, for you. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. And it's rustic is how he of, feels. Uh, so it's a part of Sam's awe with the elves is they're a deeply the, the, spiritual his, culture. They took the name of Elbereth. He doesn't know anything about this deeper spirituality and it's fascinating to him partly mm-hmm. because of that, also partly because of the exotic element of it. Yeah, yeah. and the, the elves almost, to the hobbits, are like gods. Yeah. They almost have that same relation to Right. Them. That seems to be pretty clear, even just thinking back to Ted Sandyman and Sam's conversations in The Green Dragon mm-hmm. at the beginning about elves. You can already see that kind of dimension to it. But anyway, yeah, so, I mean, I think that Tolkien is sort of interestingly... I don't know, the awkward metaphor I want to use is omnivorous in this uh-huh. way. That is, <laughs> yeah. he clearly values yeah, he has, he has writing. A, right. culture. This very even balance between yeah. oral and yeah. written history. There seems to be a few interesting things with regard to writing. I mean, he creates a written language for the black speech, but who writes in it other than... Who... Right. But the orcs don't strike me as a written culture, and they would be the only, maybe some of the ringwraiths might know I, I, how to I, I, write. I, I can see the Nazgul doing it. The orcs know, and even tribe to tribe, they very seldom speak the same dialect or even the same language. Exactly. Yeah. 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 The yeah. question is, are they even an oral culture? Or do they even, what kind well, of culture do well, they Well, that brings up yeah. the question of how corrupt are the orcs, because if they do tell stories, then they're not wholly corrupt. Because that's a creative thing, and Tolkien is very clear that evil doesn't create. Mm-hmm. But does evil subcreate? Yes, it does. Well, that is evil. Like evil enchanters subcreate. Now, but even that aspect of them is a positive thing. Well, I would think twisted. Yeah, I would think misapplied. based on the words of the Goblin King and the Hobbit, they do tell that stories. they do tell stories. Mm-hmm. They clearly have a sense of their own history. Yeah, um, through stories, uh, as we can also see in Shagrat and Gorbag's conversation mm-hmm. uh, in the end of the Two Towers and the beginning of the Return of the King, when they talk about the bad old times. Right? Yeah. It's, it's like a bit of the bad old times coming in, i.e., Numenor. Yeah, <laughs> oh, those were ugly times. I gotta tell you. Yeah, um, when, and the reference to the Great War, which is probably a reference to the Last Alliance. To the Last Alliance, probably yeah. a reference to the Last Alliance. Though you know, one wonders if there are orc stories that go back as far as the War of Wrath. They you know, I don't probably sure. have some. Sort sort of orc equivalent to a bard shaman who yeah. sits down and blesses the troops before they go out and <laughs> see, then tells exactly the stories. This big ritual in which he shamanically turns into a warg. <laughs> like, you know, ritualistically, like... See, well, that's the yeah. thing, is that you don't... I talked about this in a podcast episode I made what feels like ten years ago about orcs and orc society. Uh-huh. Which is that we never get it. I mean, we never see it. We see and it's no part of he is very of like he's trying to create a very life. direct good and evil dichotomy. Yeah. And if you start to be interested in hmm, what are these people like, then a gray area emerges and it ceases to become a battle of good and evil. And, to- and Tolkien himself wasn't even particularly sure about the orcs or even their origins. Right. He wrote an entire long essay, and I think volume 10 of the history of Middle-earth, it's included just about orcs and where they came from and are they wholly evil. Mm-hmm. And he, he wasn't sure if they came from corrupted elves or... Which if, is the mainstream Silmarillion account. Yeah. 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 Or if he was actually leaning towards, do they come from men? And what is their state insofar as the gifts of Iluvatar? Are they immortal? Are they not? He was leaning right. towards not, which uh, leads again towards... They came from men. 
because the Velar, or, including Morgoth, can't yeah. take that away. Though presumably, trying to very pitch. few orcs die of old age. Well, yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, you know, it's... And, who knows? And if they <laughs> are immortal... <laughs> and if they are immortal, then it gives a whole difference... Yeah, uh, because the, the, spin the, the, on remembering the Great War. The great that war survived and went through a lot. That, that, and the, yeah. the, the, the Great Goblin was among those that sacked Gondolin. So, of course, he remembers those swords. Yeah. And that's how he became the Great Goblin, <laughs> was by just not getting killed in battle, which is quite a feat for an orc. Right, which Goblin did, so. <laughs> which is why I think that there would be really quite few. Even if they were immortal orcs, they yeah. can remember three thousand years would, before. They would be the leaders yeah. of the orc yeah. society. Yeah. yeah, but I mean, all of this. I mean, it becomes it was yeah. it was for Tolkien an area, you know, Scott, as you said, of large and increasing, I think, speculation over mm-hmm. the course of his life. Yeah. I mean, it was one of the things that he thought more about as time went on. Yeah, I've always been curious about how do orcs reproduce and what do the orc women look like. But <laughs> <laughs> we don't get what orc women look like. We get, we do get they reproduce after the manner of the children of Iluvatar. Yes, right. Yes. So, um, and I want to see an orc baby to see if it's possibly cute. <laughs> <laughs> it, is, it is a very interesting sort of transcendental question. Are orc babies cute? And yes. I'm going with no. But, uh, I, you know, every, every, every baby, baby is cute. Is cute. <laughs> <laughs> to somebody. <laughs> to somebody, okay. I mean, yes. though actually that's an even bigger question. Do orc moms love their babies? Yeah, no, or they're, they're clearly mammalians. So yeah, no, yeah, they're clearly they're mammalian. But but see, yeah. this, these are exactly these are exactly the questions yeah, like, that are never like, answered, and that Tolkien yeah. didn't have an answer to. And then I think that you know when we're thinking about uh, the books, yeah. um, it's always you know when I uh, when I talk about this with my students, I often one a line that I try to maintain, and it's an important line to maintain, though often a difficult one, and the boundaries of it are sometimes uncertain, um, and that is between what could be called literary analysis and fan fiction, essentially. And I don't mean that, and I don't say that in a derogatory way at all, um, that I think that one of the things, you know, Tolkien's world is very fascinating, and, and I don't think that one need always resist the temptation to be thinking about it and speculating yeah. well, and sort of filling it out. He leaves room for what ifs. Yeah, right? exactly. and he does so intentionally. And yeah, there's yeah, some don't he refuses to, to answer questions that people yeah. ask him straight up. And why is still alive? Well, I don't know. I thought. No. <laughs> Next question. No, exactly. That's, but I do think that it is important to be clear, especially in your own mind, and also in the minds of everyone who's listening to you, what it is that you're doing at any given time, uh-huh. and not to confuse the two of them together. And I think you know, when we start talking about orc society and orc culture, we move almost immediately into fan fiction zone and yeah. into just sort of creating our own ideas, which may or may not be consistent with yeah. that. that, that right. like two, there, there are only like three groups of orcs that we're ever with that we get any glimpse at all. Right. And it's interesting to think about what we get from them. And there are some things that we can't answer. As we said, we can, we can tell definitively they do have a sense of their own history. Hmm. You don't get the sense that there are orc chronicles out there. In the no, history. where they keep them. Yeah, yeah, well, you know. I No, I don't know. But of course, that actually hasn't been around that, that, that long. Prob- so, yeah. It would probably be Sauron's libraries, though. Right. Or, right. or, or books that have been written by the black Numenorians or so on. Right, which actually I was going to mention before, as far as other candidates for using and possibly writing in the black speech would be people like the black Numenorians and the, the leaders of all of the other human cultures, which are uh-huh. under Sauron's sway in the East. Okay, Orcs, yeah. I, I don't see being very bookish, even given the opportunity, but the, nor the, very the, richly oral. I want to see right. the, the jocks of the evil lands. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, mm. not exactly bred for intellect and artistic. I'm sure uh, that there's an orc scribe out there with little glasses and a goatee. <laughs> <laughs> see, I'm reasonably JK I'm sure <laughs> it's an amusing thought. Yes, exactly, exactly. But yeah, so I mean, but basically, you always see the Balrogs and the dragons being the chief captains in the battles, or later on the Nazgul. Yeah. There are orc captains. I mean, even Shagrat and Gorbag we see, mm-hmm. and Grishnak as clearly a reasonably intelligent orc who's thinking for himself and knows more than he should know, but uh, still not particularly a good captain simply because he's thinking exclusively for himself. Right. Well, though, of mm-hmm. course, that's one of always the problems with evil 
creatures in Tolkien is that yeah. they can almost yeah. never be good kings yeah. or captains. They're I mean, auto-annihilative. Yeah, exactly. And self-focused. I mean, the kind of relationship that Theoden has with his people and his land and the kind of relationship that Aragorn has with all of the people who love him first and serve him second. No orc chieftain has ever asked <laughs> uh, uh, with his people. My theory, by the way, about orc women is that we have met them. I, 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 just I, go I cannot imagine battle. that either Sauron or Morgoth would be particularly chivalrous in saying, no, let's keep 50% of the orc population. Now, doubtless he would have had them breeding as much as possible, so d- mm-hmm. doubtless a big chunk of the orc female population big, would be just... Big orc breeding pits. Yeah, would be continually pregnant uh, and presumably season. barefoot but, <laughs> but well yeah but, um, I would actually imagine that there would be quite a few female orcs mm-hmm. among the trees Snaga that be yeah, I've always wondered <laughs> I, mean, I don't know but again that's yeah. there I'm, there, I'm crossing the line into, into, into speculation yeah. myself I have no idea. Um, oh yeah the other thing that I want to say about written culture and this one I think is tricky That and I think people kind of make wrong assumptions about it or hasty assumptions perhaps are Elves, mm-hmm. uh, not Ents, as perhaps my hastiness comment <laughs> might have led people uh, to anticipate. Um, uh, Ents, actually, though, classic example uh, of another oral culture. Thing, yeah. The long lists that Treebeard yeah. recites. I mean, I, mean, I mean, honestly, what would an Ent write on? <laughs> Tree <laughs> <rock paper? laughs> Exactly. Uh, now, that paper among the Ents is, would be very that, that, dodgy. Uh, I don't even like to think about Stick a little that. branch into the fire and stick out a, another branch. Ooh, Entish body art. <laughs> <laughs> um, but no, sorry, he's clearly, the, his recitation of the long list is, yes. is, yes. is obviously a... That's um, very traditional or, oral culture. Exactly. And the way that he's written a new entry in the long list for the Hobbits. But helps. People, you know, think about elves as, you know, the most artistic and the most intellectual of all of the races, and certainly they were, but that doesn't necessarily mean, as a lot of people would assume, that they're very bookish. In fact, in that passage that I referred to before in the Silmarillion, the passage about the dwarves loving Daron's runes and really kind of taking them and running with them, they weren't very popular among the elves. I mean, writing was something that they used and that they liked, but they didn't do a lot of. I mean, the elves seem to have a primarily oral culture. So yeah. it's a very different kind of oral mm-hmm. culture. It was one of the, from, from like the Rohirrim, for instance. It was a situation where they were very, very conscious of their language and they would actively play with it, whereas with human languages they develop over time, elves would consciously change their language, which irritated Feanor to no end. But... <laughs> only stands to reason. I mean, as we talked about with the Red Book, mm-hmm. what writing is being used for so often is keeping things in memory, right? Mm-hmm. But the elves don't need help to keeping things just, in memory. They just remember them. Mm-hmm. And near that same passage in the Silmarillion, in the chapter of the Sindar, Tolkien says that it's only when things started passing away do they start keeping records. Mm-hmm. That is, they start writing things down when the people who were there and would remember it under normal circumstances, might get killed in the next orc raid, and so we'd better write this down so that someone else will have it. Mm -hmm. Of course, in the next orc raid, your manuscript might get torched as well. Well, of course, that's always a possibility, but at least you're you're, increasing your chances that something will survive. (laughs) Because when you think about it, when it comes down to it, of course, in the Third Age, we're in a peculiar situation because a lot of the elves left at the end of the First Age, left Middle-earth, I mean. You You think of the number of people left in Middle-earth in the Third Age who remember Valinor. Mm-hmm. Very small population. Basically, Galadriel. Yeah, I'm, I'm coming up with... Not, not, not even Elrond. Not Elrond? Or not Elrond? Not Kyrdan? He never went, yeah. Basically, he's, he's, he's that old, but he but um, he never went. Glorfindel. Glorfindel, yeah, well, he has a very special memory. <laughs> he went there several times. Yes, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> He's the only one with a frequent flyer past oh, Valinor. Oh, goodness. But it, Can you imagine crossing the Helcaraxe twice? No, I don't think, yeah, I don't think they may. I, I, I think he came in a boat the second time. Uh, where did he get the like, boat? And where did Gandalf get his boat? <laughs> Same place, presumably. Because the Astari did come over the sea. The, so. the Teleri were wrong. They could do it twice. Well, it <laughs> they weren't as good boats. <laughs> no, Nothing it, ever is. No, exactly. But they can, can apparently make a commuter vessel or two. But anyway... But yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, there, there are clearly some. I mean, Gildo that they meet in the Shire. Clearly, you know, he is, he's of the house of Fingon. Finrod. Yeah, Finrod. Yeah, Finrod. Though probably Fingon. I mean, there's that from the manuscripts. Finrod was the original name of Fingon, who had been king. So when he wrote 
Gildor's speech, I am of the House of Finrod. Back then it meant I am of the House of the King, and then, then Finrod changed who he was, but he didn't change it. Anyway, it's complicated. <laughs> but anyway, yeah, he's clearly Noldor, and so, so presumably uh, Gildor. I either came over the sea or is the child of someone who came over the sea. Yeah, exactly. But see, there's not even any clear sense of which one that is, whether he yeah. did or not. So, I mean, there's, in any case, there is a pretty small number of people who still remember that. And so if actual memory is going to be kept alive, even among the elves, and this is, again, where I come back to what I said before about Tolkien not appearing to see writing as a corruption or a loss, really, mm-hmm. he tends to see it as well, the preservation of memory. Yeah, um, had it not been for writing, we would have lost all of the Greek and Roman mythologies and all right. of the Celtic and, mythology and, and, and all he, the Norse myths. And, and he found it a grievous loss that the, the Saxon myths were pretty much gone right. mm-hmm. because no right. one wrote them down or what was written right. down was mainly destroyed. Right. I mean, that, of course, is the, the downside, obviously, of oral culture, is that it can so be... Whenever somebody conquers you, yeah. they conquer you. Yeah. <laughs> or, you know, Which, some other disaster occurs mm-hmm. or whatever. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. I, I wonder, that kind of relates writing a bit to the Elven Rings, because their yes. entire purpose is immortality and preservation of culture that is past. Well, and, and once again, all of the Elvish writing that we see is on talismans and objects of power. There are references that there are books in Rivendell. Right. There, there is a library in As far as whenever they actually show something in yeah. Elvish. Yes, which was put there by Bilbo. <laughs> <laughs> he consulted them. He consulted them. Yeah. Yeah. Tregging books along on his poor little pony. <laughs> That's why he invited all those dwarves to travel with them. <laughs> you carry my library. <laughs> yeah. So it's it's in the description of Bilbo's book that we get the reference to the written documents that are in Rivendell. He consulted all of the sources, both written and living, that were in Rivendell to tell him the stories, and that's all. So, where the what was your material. father really like? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And what's, though, of course, even then, of course, quickly, even in Rivendell, you get into a, I mean, you can talk to Gorfindel, hey, you know, tell me about the fall of Gondolin. Um, that's uh, a very personal chapter. <laughs> 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 That would have been tricky. But, 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 you know, I mean, we get that, but we also get written sources. Um, but I agree, coming back to the runes that you mentioned before, and this brings up... You see, all, all, all the time in just about every explicitly magical act that is performed has some sort of writing or incantation associated with it. Mm-hmm. Even from the flashiest stuff, which is basically Gandalf's fireworks, all of his fireworks have a G rune on them mm-hmm. and, mm-hmm. and the elf letter. As well, there's clearly a correlation. I mean, I think of the line from Gimli's Casa Doom song and runes of power upon the door. Yeah, yes. um, which very and much. And you see in the West Gate, not runes of power, but letters of power. Yeah, mm-hmm. which is very much something that ties into the few things we do know about Anglo-Saxon magic, is that it was mostly conducted through runes of power. Yeah, and. You know, I would say in Tolkien, I'm hesitating to say this because I'm not sure it's true, but I would think that written runes and magical spells, especially written on weapons and doors and things, I want to say that they are a subset or an application of a larger connection between words and power Yeah. in Tolkien. I think of when Elrond reads the runes on Orchrist and Glamdring in mm-hmm. The Hobbit. The runes say the names of the swords and whose sword they were. I mean, by reading it, he can tell, ah, this sword was named Glamdring, the faux hammer, which the King of Gondolin once wore. So he's like, oh, it's Turgon's sword. I can tell. Because it's labeled, right? It's got his, like... Orchrist was its mate. Mm-hmm. Right. Exactly. It's got its, its name tag on it here. Now, of course, obviously the runes are more than just name yeah, tags. Yeah, faux hammer but reads I, as a name, but it also reads as a spell you yeah, will what be it does, done. Which is how the goblins basically read it, right? I mean, right. beater is what they call the sword. Beater and biter, because goblin, cleaver, and faux hammer are not just what the swords are called, it's what they right. do. Though, again, there's obviously metaphor here, as Glendring <laughs> is not a blunt weapon. It, right. It, it stabs the great There are swords that are more inclined to bone-breaking than to cutting. 
though the time that we see Gwamdring used is when he's running through the Great Goblin. Uh, I just read that scene mm-hmm. with my son last night, actually. Awesome. He was terrified by the Goblin song. That's the best song in the American Bass version. <laughs> down, down to Goblin Town. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was very scary. Well, I was trying to play up the onomatopoeia. Black, harsh, crack, black, crack. Snap, crack. But anyway, of Tom Waits doing it. Exactly. But anyway, no, that, so anyway, as I said, there's clearly some metaphor involved. But also, I mean, as I said, the goblins themselves do their names, which are not only simpler, but they speak to the actions or attributes of the swords themselves. Mm-hmm. Beater and biter, like, that is the weapon which bites, and that is the weapon that beats, is what they call them. Mm-hmm. Um, so clearly, power and action of the sword is connected yeah. with its name, as of course is true, obviously, of Andoral, Flame of the West, and we say yeah. flame on several occasions. Yes. Now, again, on the west gate of Moria, you yeah. see two things that are basically written on it. The password and what the door does, which opens, and right. the signature, Narvi and Calabrimbor. Yeah. So basically, we've got this connection between the maker and the action. Yeah. And those two things being written on a thing makes it work. Yes. Speak, friend, and enter seems to be... It's not just a plaque mm-hmm. up next to the door to provide the, the, instructions, the, like the, a museum the, plaque the, or something. letters are what makes the door open. Yeah, there does seem to be a pretty clear connection there. So yeah, I mean, I do think that we see even more clearly the comments that Glorfindel makes when he picks up the hilt of the Morgul blade. There are right? evil things written here yes. that perhaps your eyes cannot see them. Exactly. So I mean, he can tell, obviously, not just the name like the proper noun of that mm-hmm. knife, but what its properties are. Spiritual writings on it. Yeah, yeah, which are obviously connected which, with its power Which implies it that the Nazgul do write. Or whoever forged that knife. Yeah, it's a Morgul blade. The Witch King, possibly, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah that seems... He was a sorcerer. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so no, I mean, I think that that's perfectly plausible. So there are lots of times where we can see this correlation between writing and power, or writing and magic, but as I say, I think that, that that's... Way back in the Ainu Linda day. Mm-hmm. Well, and that's exactly... Mm-hmm. ultimately what I'm thinking of. Yeah. That there's a lot of obvious connection between words, or especially song, and power. And the runes seem to be a vehicle for that. Yes. Uh, of course, as you say, speak, friend, and enter. But you, you have to say it. <laughs> you have to say <laughs> the word melon before the gates will open. Gandalf's entire mistake was in translating to the fellowship. Exactly. <laughs> Had he just read it aloud, it would have opened. No, exactly. So it's only when the word is spoken that the power actually is activated, that the power actually occurs. Which would imply that the memory is stored in the written word, but there's actually more power in the spoken and oral word. And that, I think with the exception of things like weapons. That seems to be the case. I mean... Um, but, for, but for weapons, speaking comes in when that weapon is actually in action. That would be... The sword version of speech. Exactly. <laughs> How do you speak with a sword? <laughs> right. Climb exactly. on the table? Right. right. Um, Dan, I, I don't mean to sort of slight it, but that's what I mean when I say that I think that the runes of power and things are derivative of the power of language in general, that runes are merely the medium by which the power of words can be harnessed it's onto like, a like, physical it's object. It's like storing magical power in a thing, mm-hmm. almost. Yes, almost. Well, see, it's hard. I'm not sure of the metaphor of storage. Because Storage is not quite the right yeah. word. Because when you may think of, for instance, the elven cloaks, right, we put the thought of all that we love into all it, that we it, make. It basically, with writing on it, you interweave that intent into mm-hmm. the object. Mm-hmm. Yeah. St- yeah. Storage implies eventually you're going to remove it, and that's not right. But right. Inter- interweaving works or better. That it's, yeah, th- that it's not a vessel, which could be empty and then filled and emptied or anything like that, but rather, or like, you know, charged up and run down and recharged, you know. It's not a battery, but more like a work of art in which the artist has infused himself as well as the nature of that object together. Yeah, exactly. And think communicated of the, something through that. Think of the sword on Glachel that Beleg gets. The meteorite like, sword. Exactly, and Nelian warns him. The dark heart of the smith is still in this sword. Exactly. A, made it. Which means, A, it's a pretty sweet sword, but B, 
He's also the dark elf for <laughs> a reason. Exactly. He it's was, not that he has a tan. He's a crotchety guy. Yes. I mean, he and and he's, some he's of the his, goth elf. Yeah. And so, some of his crotchety tendencies are in the sword. And of course, we see the, the most word crotchety applied to Anglicel. <laughs> <laughs> Perhaps it's, it's not quite that. Just a, a little bit of understatement. <laughs> I suppose. I suppose. True enough. Baleful might be a little bit better. <laughs> Truly a better word than crotchety. But of course, one of the big things with Anglachel, or Gurthang as it's later called, is that it talks at the end. I mean, we, it actually speaks. And so, yeah, so I guess that that's why the way that you were just talking, Scott, about the artistry and the mind of the mind of the maker investing a thing with power. This seems clearly also how Feanor worked. I mean, all of the oh, yeah. artifacts of power seem to be based on that. It's about the work of the, the skill and power of the artist being invested as, to think of it in the simple terms, that Haldir uses. And that is Haldir? Or is it one of the other elves? I don't, I don't think it's Haldir. No, it's, 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 it's the, the elf it's that's the, present. The elf. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. The unnamed elf that they're interviewing. The guy in charge of the canoes. <laughs> right. yeah. Yeah. Random elven dockhand. Um, <laughs> uh, anyway, yeah, we put the thought of all that we love into all that we I do think it's interesting that Sam's whole conversation with Galadriel about the nature of magic, she expresses confusion as to the word both being used as to the art of the elves and the the, the deceptions. The enemy. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. And I'm wondering where you think the line is actually drawn there. I mean, clearly there's something of dominion in the deceits especially, but we're talking of investing things with power, Sauron does this. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, just to thinking of the things that we've been talking about, right? I mean, you put out on the table, right? Anglachel, mm-hmm. Glamdring, the Morgul knife that stabs Frodo, Anduril, and, say, Mary's Barrow Blade, right? right? All of these things are weapons, which hobbits would call magic weapons. That is, they're all weapons of power. Um, Some are the work of Gondolin and Numenor and Morgul. right. Some, so I mean, it's it seems to be again derived from, like whether this is good or whether this is bad seems to be the question of well, what is again we put the thought of all that we love and all that we make. What is the thought of the maker going into it? Mm-hmm. And so would, would that then say that there's not really a difference in terms of the substance of the magic used by elves versus Sauron, so much as the intent with which it's done? Yeah, because when you think about it this way, what elves are primarily associated with by Tolkien is enchantment, yes. right? which he defines as an artistry so great that it can deceive. It can deceive. It can fool you into thinking it's the primary world that you're perceiving instead mm-hmm. of the secondary world. In either case, it's truth, even if it's not fact. Yeah. And the primary difference... versus secondary is good. Yeah. What is the difference between what elves do and what Sauron does? Well, the intent. It does mm-hmm. seem in large part. And that's what I think is so interesting about her use of the word deceits. Clearly, she's not trying to say that all of Sauron's power is merely some kind of charlatanism. Mm-hmm. You know, that like he uses deceits in the sense of like, oh, he doesn't really have power. It's like all sleight well, of hand. The, the, the one he brings does things. Right, exactly. Like, as does Sauron. So, I mean, ask Finrod, does Sauron have any real power? Yes, he does. But, so that, I mean, obviously that's not what she's talking about. But again, it's interesting because one could call, in a sense, what elves do, or at least it could be applied deceitfully. It has the power to deceive. Mm-hmm. That. I think also relates to Tolkien and Lewis's famous conversation, which Lewis said, myths are lies and therefore worthless, even though breathed through silver. Right. To which Tolkien, of course, replied, no, myths are not lies, and then proceeded to write a four-page poem about it. Right, exactly, (laughs) exactly. No, I mean, I do think that it does get back to myth and the power of myth. Unfortunately, due to time restrictions, Scott and Eric and I had to end our conversation before we could go any further into our discussion of magic. The summer is moving along, and I'm doing as much work as I can on Tolkien stuff, though much of it, alas, doesn't make it onto the podcast itself. The continuation of the Hobbit lectures are on their way, however. Really. I mean it. Thanks for listening, and Godspeed.